Hello and welcome to Progressive News Network for Sunday, September 6, 2020. It is the Animal Crossing edition. Hello and welcome. We've got we got stuff for you. We have Rick Spizak. I must call him Richard. I don't know where they came from. Rick Spizak uh, has Libby Halivi of Nuclear Hot Seat for a radioactive discussion about all things nuclear. See what I did there? Janine Moloff has a big justice report this week on how Trump could cancel elections and declare martial law through executive orders with no basis in the Constitution. Uh, That is, do not miss that. That's at uh, 8.30, bottom of the next hour. And in between, uh, now and then, I have got some stuff, so here's the music. So we're getting down to the nitty-gritty. Actually, I don't know if this is nitty-gritty. I don't know if we're going super down into details. We are kind of going to skate across the top of a lot of different things tonight. First of all, uh, you know, our report is based in Florida. And when I saw this yesterday, I just had to laugh. You know, there was a uh, one of those Trump boat parades, a regatta, I guess you would call it if it was um, people with taste, um, uh, on Lake Travis, which is near Austin, Texas. And this became news, not because it's Trump having a boat parade, because those happen everywhere. If you live in Florida and you've been out on the water on a holiday, you've probably seen them. But what made news for this one is that the sheriff's department was called out because numerous boats were were sunk, were capsized. And so there was all of this uh, you know, chatter on social media, like, oh my God, was there bad weather? You know, what happened? And it turns out, you guys, it turns out that they drowned in their own wake. They capsized their boat. They sunk their boats in the wake of other Trump boats. Okay, so this is what happens in a, especially in a shallow, kind of a shallow uh, uh, lake you know, where you've got a lot of boat traffic, a lot of big, big boats and a lot of little tiny boats. I'm a kayaker. So I, from time to time, am out in the water with those motherfuckers in those big boats and uh, their wake will kill you. It'll just, it'll just swamp you. No, no ifs, ands, or buts. Now what they did was they had this big cluster of people and it wasn't, very well uh, coordinated and everybody just kind of started to go, you know, so you had this big mass of boats just starting to chug along, you know, and like the bigger boats got to really show off for the little guys, you know, so they really take off and they <laughs> leave this enormous wake behind them. So anybody who's trying to get into the big Trump parade behind the uh, uh, first large, um, you know, second mortgage boats in front, they get swamped. 
which is a perfect metaphor for the Trump administration for, you know, it's the guys in the big boats who are actually, you know, capsizing and sinking the guys in the little boats is literally a class analogy here. If you look at the pictures, it's, it's little boats. It's little, you know, the kind of boat that, that I would, you know, a a normal person would have, you know, that you'd kind of go out fishing on maybe a little bit of this and that, not like a 36 foot cabin cruiser on a lake for God's sakes. Anyway, thought that was really funny. Thought I would share. Um, also, from uh, from from Trump world, from the Republicans to the Democrats, looks like uh, Michael Bloomberg is not going to be supporting Joe Biden uh, with any kind of money in Florida. And I don't know whose idea it was to um, rely on that to 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 think like, uh, oh, Michael Bloomberg will bail us out. Uh, for some for some cash in this in this in the uh, election in Florida, but uh, it turns out Michael Bloomberg was really only in the race to make sure that that Bernie Sanders lost. That's that's why he was in the race. He got what he wanted. He got his speaking spot at DNC, and he's like, "See ya, suckers." And you know, I looked into this. <laughs> and and uh, maybe this is a little nitty gritty, but um, this is funny. Uh, someone did the numbers, uh, not just someone, Business Insider. Business Insider did the numbers on how much Michael Bloomberg would owe in uh, owe the IRS under each Democratic candidate's tax plan. And under uh, Sanders' tax plan, he would owe $4.7 billion with a B. Um, that would have been the most. Under Warren's tax plan, Michael Bloomberg would have owed $3.7 billion. That was Elizabeth Warren. The third highest was uh, was Michael Bloomberg himself at $1.2 billion. So you see how this goes. Like it's almost five billion with with Bernie Sanders, and it's almost just one billion. So like almost a fifth of what Bernie, you know, wants to um, tax the very, very rich. So Michael Bloomberg said, well, you know, I think 1.2 billion is fair for a, a, a revoltingly wealthy person such as himself to, to pay. Joe Biden's plan for Michael Bloomberg and other wealthy people of, of his stripe is, uh, is lower than Michael Bloomberg's. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, uh, even Michael Bloomberg had more self-respect than to uh, lowball it as much as Joe Biden did. Joe Biden's tax bill for someone as wealthy as Michael Bloomberg was is just one one billion dollars, which is two hundred thousand two hundred million two hundred million two hundred million less. Wow. When you start getting up in billions, <clears throat> that's a lot of that's a lot of money. Uh, it's it's really hard for us to fathom. But uh, but yeah, Biden. You know, so so you know, if it's between Biden and Trump, you know, Michael Bloomberg, the former Republican, and <clears throat> um, uh, 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 the uh, you know, 
quasi-fascist mayor of of New York. Uh, yeah, he, he he even he had uh, more more shame than than Joe Biden does in, in terms of their tax plan. So I thought that was interesting. Thought I'd share that with you. Here's another interesting piece of information. You know how we've been talking about the uh, postmaster general and what a incredible piece of shit he is. And it just keeps getting worse, you know, with the removing the machines, the sorting machines so that, you know, ballots can't go out and ballots can't come back. And, you know, he owns stock in companies that uh, uh, compete with the United States Postal Service. And, you know, it's just every day there's a, there's a new, snippet of of badness coming out of the uh, postmaster general's office uh, relating to this guy. Did you know, though, that the postmaster general's uh, position is impeachable? The House of Representatives could actually impeach this guy. And, um, And, hey, maybe they will. We shall see. We, you know, you can only hope. Okay, what else do we have here? We have a little tidbit about Joe Kennedy. Joe Kennedy the third, you know, ran against Ed Markey for his Senate seat in Massachusetts, and he lost badly. Um, and it turns out, you know, Joe Kennedy had a House of Rep- he was in the House of Representatives. He had to give up his uh, his seat in order to run for the Senate. And so now we're looking at who is left in the race to take that seat. And it looks like after all is said and done, Joe Kennedy gave up his seat in the House so that a 32-year-old former Republican, um, <clears throat> I guess cut of the same cloth of Patrick Murphy, in that way, will most likely be taking his seat. That is the that is who won the Democratic primary, and in that particular district, most likely that a that the Democrat is going to win. But who knows? Uh, <clears throat> this sounds like a fairly weak um, candidate. Just thirty two years old, former Republican, doesn't have any name recognition. Uh, he could be weak enough of a of a uh, candidate to throw it to the Republican. All right, hold on just a second. <clears throat> okay, losing my voice. It's allergy season over here, uh, Swampy Jays, and oh my God, I'm allergic to everything. Um, and I hope you guys are doing well with that. Uh, this is this is a time of year for me where everything goes haywire. And listen, this year has not disappointed. I have had uh, just about a solid week of all kinds of things going haywire, uh, pretty much related to allergies. 
Uh, got to do a telemedicine appointment with my doctor this week. That was fun. And she told me, and I didn't know this, so, you know, new information for you guys as well as me probably. Uh, did you know that allergies can actually cause heartburn and GI distress? I did not know that. I know that now. I'm going to be seeing an allergy specialist very soon, <laughs> clearly. But, yeah, you can have allergies so bad that your body reacts in such a way that other systems, aside from your sinuses and uh, your your vocal cords, um, that other systems can get inflamed and get angry as well. And so pretty much anything in one's body that can get angry about an allergy is in my body uh, right now at this very moment. So it's been a very fun week out here. Uh, I've spent a lot of this week actually because I've been feeling so rotten. I've been doing a lot of reading on things that make you feel rotten, like uh, like COVID and, and, and long-hauling COVID, which we've talked about here on the show before. And I found out something. There is uh, This is so interesting, and it's so cool. Uh, because of COVID, you know, maybe something good's going to come out of this. But because of COVID, uh, we're looking closer at some of the uh, physiological uh, uh, actions that are going on in our body as we're reacting to this uh, to this uh, uh, particular insult. And I know that most people are familiar with the the idea of a cytokine storm. So like a cytokine storm is like when you get a cold and what's actually making you sick is your body's reaction to the ant to the antigen or the invader or whatever to the cold. Um, that's a cytokine storm. That's not the only kind of so-called storm that can wreak havoc on your body. There is another uh, form of a physiological uh, storm called a Bradykinin storm. Bradykinin. That's Brady, like the Brady Bunch, and K-I-N-I-N. Bradykinin. Bradykinin storm is very important to the way that uh, COVID impacts long haulers, and it looks like people who are uh, who are considered long haulers, it looks like they pretty much have a post-viral syndrome that is pretty much indistinguishable from um, uh, myalgic encephalomyelitis, what is also known as chronic fatigue syndrome in the United States. When I say something good could possibly come out of this whole COVID situation, right now, Really quickly, people are jumping on this Brady Kynan storm as uh, because there's so much potential for this to explain why COVID kills and why people are sick at, um, after getting a virus. Keep an eye on that. I'm just putting it out there. Put a pin in it. Think about it. If you run across an article that mentions Brady Kynan. Uh, dig in. It's super interesting stuff. And hey, if you're like me and you have one of these 
crazy, you know, post-viral syndromes. I've had mine for going on 20 years now, joy. Um, then there could be some research that is adjacent to this whole COVID-19 business that um, could shed some light on our situation. Just thought I would throw that in right there. Uh, something else that I saw on the uh, interwebs this uh, this week. It was just yesterday, actually. Michael Moore tweets out. Now, you know that um, uh, Governor Snyder, of, uh, the former governor of Michigan, uh, has endorsed Joe Biden. And you might also remember that Michael Moore, in his movie um, Fahrenheit 11.9, did this whole thing with uh, with the water in Flint, and he showed how uh, President Obama went to Flint to this meeting where everyone was there, and they were they were hoping they were they they, they weren't just hoping they were they were absolutely positively sure that here comes President Obama to save the day, you know. Here he comes to save the day. It's Obama, and he's uh, addressing this this town hall. It's this auditorium full of people, and they're all worried about their children and the lead poisoning and not being able to drink the water and so on and so forth. And he does this whole like rigmarole where he's like, "I'm, I'm, I've got a frog in my throat. I need to drink the water. I would really like a drink of water," and. You know, the audience is going, oh, my God, don't drink the water. Get a bottle or something. And the whole point was for him to, you know, kind of put it in people's faces that, hey, I'm drinking the water. And you should, too, <laughs> regardless of the fact that your your kids are getting sick from lead poisoning and so on and so forth. So Michael Moore tweets out yesterday that Melissa Mays, Flint activist and mom with poison kids, tells him on his podcast Rumble that Biden, Biden must promise three things. Number one, to renounce the endorsement by Snyder and apologize. Number two, to provide health care for people in Flint who have been injured by this uh, lead in the water and the dirty water situation generally. And number three, to replace all the pipes and the plumbing that is making people sick. Now, I need to remind you guys, the whole reason why the water is messed up in Flint has nothing to do with, uh, uh, oh, just a, a thing that happened and it, and it can't be explained. No, this, this, was, this was engineered. They had two separate water systems. They cut one off and they turned the other on using a... a, a, a a less reliable source for water in crappy pipes and, you know, the, the other good water that they used to have is now available for businesses, but not for people. So this is a terrible situation. And for the governor of Michigan to, you know, first of all, he's a Republican, he was one of the Republicans in the Tea Party movement, along with uh, Rick Scott from Florida, who, you know, pretty much formed a lot of the political moment that uh, Democrats are facing now, right? 
And it's just gobsmacking that this would be an endorsement that the campaign would accept or the campaign would accept and tout or, you know, just, you know, think for a minute, a minute about the uh, hair on fire freak out that happened when Joe Rogan, who's just a podcaster who sometimes talks about cage fighting and smoking pot, uh, he said, well, oh, I might vote for Bernie Sanders. It wasn't an endorsement. It was just a by the by. As he was doing his show, he said to someone else, hey, I think I might vote for Bernie Sanders. And all of the Democratic establishment uh, freaked out and you know, threatened Bernie Sanders with, and the campaign with all kinds of retribution for a Republican, which it's not even clear that um, Joe Rogan is uh, affiliated with any political party, um, but it's just outrageous that that he that Bernie Sanders would ups, would accept a an endorsement from Joe Rogan who does ayahuasca and talks to uh, comedians who make dick jokes or whatever. You know, I mean, there was absolutely nothing to that, and the backlash was utterly revolting just utterly revolting um and so you know you've got uh, rick snyder uh putting his um putting his stamp of approval there on uh on joe biden you know right along with john Kasich and you know all these other guys that spoke at the uh at the uh convention um and we're supposed to embrace that <clears throat> Now that'd be fine, okay? Like, like, let's say this. Let's just go out on a limb and say this. That would be a okay if, at the same time, the party was also reaching out to the left and saying, "Yeah, we need to bring you in, and I want to see some people from, you know, from left-leaning, left-leaning campaigns on my transition team. I want to have uh, important uh, progressive voices uh, in my cabinet or, or advising me on certain subjects, but you don't see that, you know, instead you've got uh, Pete Buttigieg, who's, uh, you know, I don't, I, I'm not sure his affiliation is even earthling at this point, but he's, uh, he's, he's on a transition team. There's, there's that. Um, <clears throat> uh, Pete Buttigieg, by the way, is the Democrat that a uh, college Republican can love. That is that is who that is. And Joe Biden is the Democrat that that college Republicans' dad can love. You know, so really they're they're running for the Republicans right now. And <clears throat> I think that's fine. If you want Republican votes, go get those Republican votes, win the election with those Republican votes, but don't expect the left to, you know, hop on over and pull the lever uh, or fill in the little bubble for you because there's absolutely nothing that's being offered to the left in Joe Biden's um, platform, so to speak. It's not really a platform. It's just a <clears throat> a uh, set of marketing principles at this point. 
Uh, let's see. What else do we got? Oh, yeah. Just to finish that off, you know, a lot of people say, let's get Joe Biden elected and hold his feet to the fire. Now, I think I might have mentioned this last week, but uh, we attempted to hold Obama's feet to the fire. Now, this was somebody who, when they were elected in 2008, we thought we were electing somebody who was a progressive. We thought we were electing somebody who was left of center. And that's not who we elected. And when we attempted to hold his feet to the fire, first of all, we had no leverage, you know, and and secondly, not only was the left like like pushed aside, they were derided. If you remember, if you recall, Rahm Emanuel, you know, uh, saying that that we were um, uh, fucking developmentally delayed people. You know, he didn't actually use that terminology. He used the other form of saying that. But anyway, um, the only way you have at this point to hold Joe Biden's feet to the fire is to withhold your vote until he gives you something in return. And actually, I remember we did talk about this last week with uh, um, Brianna Joy Gray's great article in current affairs about how litmus tests are good actually now in the final equation uh i'm i'm not going to twist anybody's arm to vote or not vote or 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 anything you know i'm just sharing you know who i am and how i feel and whatever whoever you are and who however you feel that is fine that is absolutely fine we're all here just getting along, trying to make our own way with what we have to work with. And um, this is how I'm seeing my way through this. As bad as Trump is, I can't in good faith uh, cast a vote for Joe Biden at this moment. Uh, He does have affordable access to my vote um, and he can come and get it. Anytime he wants, As, uh, whenever he wants to reach out to the left, we will be here, and uh, um, and we'll listen. We'll absolutely listen. All right, gonna take a short break. welcome for the elevator music. Um, 
a little bit more from Florida. Pasco County has gone full minority report. Absolutely full minority report. There's Sheriff Chris Noco or Noco in OCCO. Chris Noco or Noco uh, was appointed in, uh, he took office in 2011 when the previous sheriff stepped down and retired early. And uh, he was appointed by Rick Scott. I know he's, he's, he's exactly the kind of sheriff that a uh, Rick Scott or Rick Snyder would, would appoint. Um, he was uh, 35 years old and a newly promoted major who had joined the sheriff's office just two years earlier, but he had deep ties to Republican politics. Um, and even though he had far less experience in law enforcement than the outgoing sheriff, he got the job because he's the kind of guy that people like Rick Snyder and Rick Scott just love. So, and why did they love him so much? Turns out he implements a form of what he's calling um, intelligence-based policing, I believe, where, uh, where we essentially have a situation, a, a, a pre-crime minority report, uh, flavor of policing in Pasco County. And, you know, like, just stop for a moment. Pasco County is to the north of Tampa Bay. Pasco County is kind of where you're going to find the McMansions of, um, uh, you know, certain medical specialists that have offices in the Tampa Bay area. Um, you are you've you've got some folks who have always lived out there it's always been you know kind of a like a like a frontier like a like a coastal front florida frontier you know it's not it's not like tampa bay area it's not like clearwater st petersburg or sarasota or any of those places it's more country um but it's been uh rapidly developing so you know uh, new uh, residential areas have been going in that are very tony very expensive houses um you know that are that are taking advantage of uh wide open spaces and lots of um somewhat cheap land that that can be had in florida so What I'm getting at is Pasco County is not a crime-ridden area, to say the least. It's it's a suburb. It's a bedroom community of of Tampa Bay. So what they're doing is is actually remarkable. And the Tampa Bay Times has done an investigation on them, and uh, which is really worth reading. Just go to just search on tampabay.com or Tampa Bay, which is the name of the um, uh, one and only last standing newspaper there, uh, Tampa Bay Times. And the title is Pasco's Sheriff Created a Futuristic Program to Stop Crime Before It Happens. And this was published on September 3, so three days ago. Uh, this story has been out now. Um, 
they're focusing here, what they're doing, let me just read this to you really quick. The sheriff's office generates a list of people it considers likely to break the law based on arrest histories, unspecified intelligence, and arbitrary decisions made by police analysts. Then it sends deputies to find and interrogate anyone whose name appears, often without probable cause, a search warrant, or evidence of a specific crime. They swarm homes in the middle of the night, waking families and embarrassing people in front of their neighbors. They write tickets for missing mailbox numbers and overgrown grass. This is, this is broken windows policing, essentially, in the suburbs. Um, saddling residents with court fees and fines. They come again and again, making arrests for any reason they can. One former deputy described the directive like this. Quote, make their lives miserable until they move or sue. And I am hoping someone's got a lawsuit in the works for this. There's a little picture. There's a picture here of one of the people who have been identified by this uh, pre-crime program. It's a child who's 15 years old. His name is Rio Wojcik. Wojcicki, Rio Wojcicki. Okay, so I'm sorry, Polish pronunciation. I'm never going to get this. Wojcicki, I believe. He's 15 years old for crying out loud. He had been caught like a year ago uh, uh, checking door, uh, checking in people's uh, carports to steal bikes. This is something that kids do. Kids get into that kind of mischief and, you know, this is not, this is not the kind of crime that you need a, um, a futuristic uh, intelligence based. And I'm going to a little bit more on that in a second, a futuristic intelligence based policing program to go after, you know, just pay a little bit more attention to the kid, you know, like, make sure his parents have the resources they need to keep him in school and so on and so forth. But instead of doing that, uh, you know, this kid became a target in September of 2019, almost a year after he was arrested for sneaking into carports with a friend and uh, uh, with the stealing of the bicycle thing. Uh, Those were the only charges against Rio and he had already had a state issued juvenile probation officer checking on him. Yeah, so he was already in the system. He was doing his probation, which costs the family money and time, and you have to drive to it, and it's a big pain in the ass. Yet, from September to January, for four months, okay, for four months, Pasco Sheriff's deputies went to his home at least 21 times, according to dispatch logs. That's at least once a week, at least. They showed up at the car dealership where his mom works, looked for him at a friend's house, and checked his gym to see if he had signed in. This is, this is horrible. This is absolutely, you know, his mom could lose her job for, uh, you know, for bringing that kind of drama into the workplace. I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. And, the sheriff's de- department here uh, richly deserves to be sued. 
since 2015, the sheriff's office had sent deputies on checks like these more than 12,500 times, according to dispatch logs. Um, so what happens here? They're saying that they're trying to stop crime before it happens by harassing 15-year-olds, I suppose. Um, but what they're really doing is they're going to these houses to collect information, to feed it back into their intelligence system. So deputies go there. They start asking a bunch of questions. They're not just asking about their target. They're asking about their friends, their family members, anyone in their orbit, where they work, where they hang out, like you know, they were going to the kid's gym to try and find him there. So they are creating profiles of, of uh, sociological profiles of <clears throat> orbits of, of people. All right. So, you know, let's say you were a, a friend of Rio once removed, you know, like he's a friend of a friend. You know, what's going to happen is that Rio is going to be ostracized by anybody who knows him at school. And I can't imagine any scenario where that is actually the way that you want to, you know, uh, treat people if you want them to stay out of crime. Because what you're doing in that case is you're making sure that the only people who will hang out with this kid are, you know, other juvenile delinquents. At that point, um, they are ensuring that crime will happen with this nonsense. Um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this program is <clears throat> how it what how it's staffed and you know what the what the uh, mission is. So the sheriff's office has a 30-person intelligence-led policing section with a $2.8 million budget, and get this, it's run by a former senior counterterrorism analyst who was assigned to the National Counterterrorism Center. I mean, dig that just for a second. Counterterrorism for a kid who stole a bike. Uh, the number two is a former Army intelligence officer. Holy shit. Um, 20 analysts. They have 20 analysts in their employment scouring police reports, property records, Facebook pages, bank statements, and surveillance photos to help deputies across the agency investigate crimes, according to the agency's latest intelligence-led policing manual. Now, they say the people on their list are what the department calls prolific offenders, like 15-year-olds who stole a bike once. Um, the manual describes them as individuals who have, quote, taken to a career of crime and are, quote, not likely to reform. These are the kind of people who get appointed under a Rick Scott or a Rick Snyder administration. This is this is the 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 kind of stuff you you wind up with. Now, I I was under the impression I had seen uh, it shared on social media that there is someone challenging this sheriff in this uh, election cycle. 
And I went to the Pasco County uh, Supervisor Election Site, and I'll be dipped in shit. No one is challenging him. So I'd like to know what the hell the Democratic Party of Florida is doing by ignoring this situation in Pasco County. That should not be happening uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Okay. Let's move out. Let's 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 get in let's get in our little drone and uh fly up a few uh tens of thousands of feet and take a wider look at things. Let's look at things that are going on uh outside of Florida and in the in the world at large. There is um every month Facebook does a report on coordinated inauthentic behavior is what it calls it. And essentially this is their, you know, we're uh, smashing Russian trolls uh, program or whatever. So every month they, they promote how they have banned pages and accounts from Facebook and Instagram that they have found are connected to um, inauthentic behavior or what they call, um, I think it's foreign interference, but I want to find the exact, the exact wording on that. Uh, And this month for, well, this was released for August. So for for August, they name three organizations that they have um, carried out massive bannings on. Now, I found this really interesting because the the way that they kind of un, unfurl this in their in their report is they talk about. First, they talk about the the definitions. You know, what is the purpose of this report? What is the uh, the, the CIB, which is coordinated and authentic behavior? Um, and oh, here it is: foreign or government interference (FGI). That's the other one. So, so they're looking for inauthentic inauthentic behavior and foreign government interference, which means like. Uh, Russia interfering in the United States or the United States possibly interfering in the affairs of another state. I mean, because that's, that's kind of the way it works. It's a two way street. And up until now, we haven't really seen Facebook go after uh, a shoe on the other foot kind of situation, you know, instead of a, a organization or an entity targeting the United States for the first time that I've seen, we've got Facebook targeting an organization that was United States linked that was interfering in the politics and the political systems of other countries. So what we got here is right before I went on air, Ben Norton over at the Gray Zone dropped this enormous article. Uh, I, I thought, hey, I'll just print this out and share it with the audience. It's 38 pages. This is this is a thorough 
drilling down into the details report that he's done. So I'm just going to share a, a little bit of what I'm going to call like his executive summary here. Now, the of the three organizations that Facebook uh, targeted for banning was one called CLS Strategies. It's a Washington, D.C.-based PR firm linked to the U.S. government and Democratic Party, CLS Strategies. Now, according to the Facebook report, CLS Strategies, they are the second entity uh, mentioned in the report. Sorry for the paper noise. Um, Their presence on Facebook and Instagram, they had 26 Facebook accounts, 46 pages, and 36 Instagram accounts. They had half a million uh, followers following one or more of these pages, and about 43,000 people followed one or more of their Instagram accounts. They also spent around $3.6 million in advertising, primarily in U.S. dollars. It doesn't tell you the duration of time for that advertising money. And that is important because scale here is really important. We know that in 2016, the Trump campaign was spending a million dollars a day on social media spending. So $3.6 million completely overshadows anything the IRA. Remember the IRA, the Internet Research Agency, which was the uh, Russian-associated organization that supposedly through our elections, through Yosemite Sam and uh, masturbating with Jesus memes, uh, they had spent in the United States less than $50,000. So when you say $3.6 million for CLS strategies, that's a significant amount of money for these types of, for these types of things. But once you drill down into this, it kind of makes sense. Now go to CLS strategies webpage, which I did way before Ben's article dropped. So I was, I was like, Oh, wow. You, this is refreshing my memory of, of uh, the information that I Uh, stumbled upon a couple of days ago and hold on turning on a light okay uh cls strategies is a pr firm that handles the right-wing uh dictatorships of a number of countries okay so we're gonna we're gonna kind of unpack this uh A major U.S. PR firm located just a few blocks from the White House has been caught running an industrial-grade propaganda operation on social media. The information warfare blitzkrieg relied on fake accounts and pages to spread disinformation on behalf of right-wing U.S.-backed governments in Latin America while deploying covert propaganda to destabilize the leftist governments targeted by the U.S. in Venezuela and Mexico. I love this story, you guys. The company behind the campaign, CLS Strategies, signed a contract to represent Bolivia's far-right junta and provide, quote, strategic communications council in the lead-up to the country's ostensible election. Ostensible and election are 
kind of keywords there. Installed through a U.S.-backed military coup in November 2019, the Bolivian regime has delayed the election numerous times on specious grounds. And if you follow what's been going on in Bolivia, it is absolutely revolting. And I think that's about the seventh time I've used that word this this uh, segment, and I do so advisedly because revolting and revolt are kind of the same thing. I mean, y- y- y'all need to be aware of this, and you need to be actively aware of this. So when I say revolting, I don't just mean that. I mean, holy crap, something needs to be done. CLS Strategies also used its network of fake accounts and pages to push propaganda on behalf of Venezuela's right-wing opposition and the U.S.-backed parallel coup regime of Juan Guaido. You know, Juan Guaido, the fake president of Venezuela, (laughs) kept trying to say, no, really, I'm the president. Um, He wasn't the president. And you know who's behind him, who's behind Juan Guaido, is Marco Rubio. You know, these are not nice people at all. Some of the CLS-run Facebook and Instagram profiles even posed as disgruntled Venezuelan soldiers and called on members of the armed forces to rebel against the socialist government. Other pages claim to be run by disaffected former supporters of leftist leaders like Venezuela's Hugo Chavez and Bolivia's Evo Morales. Now, I've run into this. I I take an interest in Latin American politics because I uh, studied it in college, and it was something uh, that I got into uh, as a as a young Catholic, yeah, uh, which was um, my way of being like, screw you, I'm not going to take communion, but I will go work with the Catholic Workers Group. Um, If you do any social media work on Latin America issues around Bolivia, around Venezuela, around Nicaragua, Honduras, Mexico, you are going to get these little, I think of them as like foo fighters. They're they're these little troll bots that they will always say that I'm a disgruntled former supporter or or uh, I, I'm, I'm rebelling against the government. And they always want to say things like, oh, you're not Venezuelan, you're not Nicaraguan, so you don't even know and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's, it's ridiculous and it's so completely, obviously an op. You know, my uh, listeners to the show know that my background is in advertising and marketing. And when social media came on the scene as something that marketers were expected to offer, a lot, a lot. I mean, if you wanted to be competitive, this is like steroids in baseball. If you wanted to be competitive doing social media, you needed to offer uh, uh, armies of trolls and uh, what they call what Facebook calls their um, coordinated inauthentic behavior. You needed to offer that. You needed to offer clients. Uh, well, let me put it like this: You've got a client who's running a campaign, and they just started their uh, Twitter page. And they start tweeting, 
and they're seeing they're not getting any engagement. Nobody, nobody likes their stuff. Nobody's sharing their stuff. Nobody cares about their stuff. Solution, what a, a, an unethical marketing group will do is set up a bunch of uh, uh, slave accounts, you know, bot accounts, and, and B-O-U-G-H-T, um, bot, and will uh, make sure that engagement happens with those posts. Now, what happens in this case with this kind of inauthentic behavior is this isn't just engagement. This isn't just liking and retweeting. These guys go after you hammer and tongs. That's just the way it is. Okay, moving on. CLS Strategies has close links to the U.S. government. Uh, the firm employs former governor, government officials like Mark Fierstein, who oversaw Latin American policy for the Obama White House. Not Trump, not Bush, but Obama. Fierstein served as coordinator of Latin American activities for the U.S. agency of International Development, also known as USAID, a regime change arm that has been used as a front for covert CIA operations and spearheaded the Trump administration's coup attempts in Venezuela. Now, that little paragraph right there, you know, this Fierstein guy who was a Latin American policy person for the Obama White House, do you see how there is no daylight between the Obama White House policy in Latin America and the Trump White House policy in Latin America? Because, you guys, there's no daylight between Republican and Democratic uh, foreign policy, especially in Latin America. Another CLS senior advisor, David Romley, worked as a Pentagon spokesman, press attache to the Secretary of Defense, and public affairs officer for the U.S. Marine Corps. Before moving to CLS, Romley also served as vice president for communications at the German Marshall Fund, a prominent Cold War era think tank funded by the U.S. government and NATO that has been integral in pushing the new Cold War on Russia and China. And so it goes. Uh, this is this is some this is some nasty nasty stuff, and good on Facebook for getting rid of CLS strategies and letting us know the, what is going on there in um, in their particular uh, case. But I guarantee you, they aren't the only PR strategy group that is engaged in this kind of behavior, not just from the U.S., but from other countries. They are um, all over the place. So don't believe everything you read on social media. Back everything up uh, by um, finding citations and making sure that you are uh, – um, Working with evidence. Always, always, always follow the data. Always, always, always follow evidence. Don't rely on uh, what other people say is their own confirmation, which reminds me, there's an article I didn't get to. Glenn Greenwald did a piece this week in The Intercept on the misuse, the idea of confirmation. 
hell. Do I have time? Um, so there, you're probably familiar with the article that was in the Atlantic this week. Uh, uh, Goldberg's, is that his name? Jeffrey Goldberg put out an article about Donald Trump uh, disparaging the troops, you know, like saying bad things about the military. And the piece was all about uh, that the narrative had been confirmed. Okay. So as this piece had been reported out, it was uh, said over and over again that independent sources confirm, independent confirmation see that the CNN story is true. Da 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 da. All over the place, you got independent confirmation. Well, what that turns out to be uh, in many cases, and especially with somebody like Jeffrey Goldberg, who basically was integral into lying us into the war in, uh, in Iraq by equating al-Qaeda with um, Iraq soldiers. Um, Now he's got this story that has everybody up in a lather, and the only evidence that is being presented is this quote-unquote confirmation. No one comes forward with their name. No one says, this was me and I saw it. And then what is most insidious about it is most likely the same person who is confirming this at other news agencies. Okay. So you got, um, uh, in all likelihood, what happened, this is Glenn Greenwald's piece In all likelihood, what happened is that the same sources who claim that Jeffrey Goldberg, uh, with no evidence, um, that Trump went to other outlets with the same claims, the same tactic enabled MSNBC and CBS to claim that they too had confirmed the fundamentally false CNN story, yada, yada, yada. Okay. Who knows? This might have happened. Trump is a shitball, okay? But, but, we got to have evidence. We need to demand that people put their name to stories. Listen, I've given stories to reporters plenty of times and put my goddamn name on it, you know, because, you know, local journalists don't play this. I don't understand why MSNBC, CNN, Atlantic Magazine, and so on and so forth, I don't know why they think they should be able to get away with that. But it's bad journalism. It's just bad journalism. Listen, Trump's probably probably said all kinds of disparaging things. But that reporting and Jeffrey Goldberg are not reliable. And just be aware of that. You know, we're, we're being... We're being propagandized all the time from every different direction. Now, I am rushing in to get to this interview with Libby Halevi on nuclear hot seats. This is super important stuff. It's a great interview. Stay tuned. Coming right up. Hello there. Welcome, Libby Halivi of Nuclear Hot Seat. How are you today? I am doing as well as a person can be expected to be doing in these COVID times, Rick. How about yourself? Pretty good, my dear. Pretty good. Of all the uh, issues facing us right now, 
What are some of the ones on your front burner? One of them that I think is very important because it impacts the entire nuclear industry is a report that just came out from Moody's Investor Services. This is a bond credit rating business, and it does financial research. And their report was on the vulnerability of nuclear reactors, all nuclear reactors, to issues connected with climate change. Most specifically, the unreliability performance because Water is used to cool these machines. They all have to be on large bodies of water, and they use amazing amounts of water, incredible amounts of water every day to cool them down. When the water gets too hot, when the water level gets too low, or conversely, if there is flooding, these reactors cannot operate. And there have already been instances this summer, there were two reactors in France that were shut down because there wasn't enough temperature difference between the water and the temperature that the water needed to be to cool the reactors. So they had to shut down. And that is the law from the NRC. If you cannot cool the reactor, you've got to shut it down. This has happened in the past here in the United States. We certainly had risk of flooding with Hurricane Laura coming through, and they did not shut down the nuclear reactors, which is a setup for a potential Fukushima here in the United States. So what's happening is that the vulnerabilities and the weaknesses in the technology are being shown, which give activists and those who are for alternative energy a little bit more leverage. So that in its way is is not a bad piece of information. It's a useful piece of information. Also, some of the malfeasance in the nuclear world is catching up with them. In Ohio, there was a $1.6 billion bailout of nuclear reactors in the state that went through last year. They took money away from genuine renewables. But what has just happened in the last few weeks is that the Speaker of the House of Representatives in Ohio and four of his associates have been arrested for racketeering for a $60 million federal bribery case connected to the bailout. They are saying that this is the largest uh, bribery scheme ever perpetrated against the state of Ohio. And also uh, there is now legislation coming through to rescind that bailout of the nuclear industry, which was $1.6 trillion dollars. 60 million of which was funneled into private pockets or to uh, invest in the election of um, a certain legislators who could then be counted on to vote in favor of the bailout. I mean, this goes back many years and it just came out. It's a big FBI case. So there's accountability that is half. That's kind of the end of the good news. In the bad, there is a huge push going on and COVID is being used as a smoke screen around this. When we're all distracted by COVID or the election or, you know, the rest of, of, of what's going on that's making us so crazy here in the United States right now, the nuclear industry is wasting no time to make as much progress as it possibly can in ways that are neither good for people nor the environment. There has been a need for something to do with all of the tons upon tons upon thousands of tons of radioactive waste that is created by each and every nuclear reactor. Right now, that waste is held on site 
at each of these reactors, all of the waste they have ever created, no matter how many years they have been in operation. And there has been a push to have a centralized depository, repository for this waste. Now, the big push for years was for Yucca Mountain in uh, Nevada. First of all, is on land that is sacred and is supposed to be under the control of the Western Shoshone Band of Indians. So it was illegally placed there. Um, it is not a repository right now. It's just a big tunnel, and it's a huge fiction. They, and it's interesting that in this election cycle, both Trump and Biden are against Yucca Mountain. Nobody in the state of Nevada wants Yucca Mountain. But Yucca Mountain is being kept alive as a concept because the big push is going on right now in New Mexico to develop what is being called a consolidated interim, really important word there, consolidated interim storage site in New Mexico. And there's a second one just over the border of New Mexico into West Texas. And these are the two places that are being targeted to bring all of the nuclear waste from all of the reactors around the country there. And they've been making a lot of progress since COVID. And right now, it's right on the verge of uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission approving the environmental impact statement, which is a lie, because there's no taking into consideration the long-term effect of this waste being here. Now, why do I put the word interim in quotes, and why do I refer to Yucca Mountain as a fiction, because what is feared in New Mexico is that this is going to ultimately be a permanent repository. You know, the stuff gets brought there. We'll go into the transport in another discussion, part of this discussion. But the stuff gets brought there, gets put in substandard containers. These are not containers that, quote unquote, are supposed to be for, you know, forever. Uh, they're supposed to be for a hundred years. They're really only, we're told, well, in 40 years, it will all be moved away. And there are other lies like that. Anything to kick the discussion down the can down the road. Ultimately, it is believed by activists and it's only logical that once the waste gets there, it's going to be abandoned. It's going to be a permanent waste site, but they can't call it that. It is illegal for them to call it that. So they keep the vision of Yucca alive, even though nobody wants it and it is not going to happen, in order to call these interim and move forward as though, oh, we'll, we'll take care of it. It'll just be a couple or three or five generations down the line. They'll have to deal with it. In other words, kicking the can down the road. And there is... Nope. Go ahead. Let me ask you a quick question. Sure. One of those, is it the New Mexico site that was called WIP? No, WIP is actually a fully developed repository for low and mid-level nuclear waste. The okay. spent fuel rods that come out of a nuclear re reactor are high-level nuclear waste because they contain in the waste stream plutonium. And that plutonium is only a couple of notches away from being weapons grade. So this right. is extremely toxic. It's got a half-life of 24,000 years. It will be dangerous for anything up to half a million years. And they're saying, well, we can deposit it here for uh, in New Mexico for up to 100 years, maybe. And then we'll move it to our permanent depository, which won't exist at that point. They'll give up on Yucca publicly as soon as New Mexico is in place. And the danger is not only that, well, the waste is there and it's going to be there permanently, but that it has to be transported there by rail, 
by barge, by truck, from, and it will be going through at least 40 different states. One accident on the road, one accident on the rails, you've got Chernobyl on the ground in America. Incredible. Now, I understand from your, uh, your coverage, there's also an issue about beachfront nuclear waste dump in San Onofre? San Onofre, yes. I was going to be getting to that because San Onofre is like a poster child for everything that can possibly go wrong with a nuclear reactor once it's shut down. Um, San Onofre is uh, two-thirds of the way down from Los Angeles towards San Diego. It's on what used to be a pristine beach that's still used by surfers. The site itself is within 100 high tide, It is, oh and there are – the plant was shut down. I think it's about six years ago that it was shut down. But the problem has been the waste in the fuel rods there, which have been sitting in a spent fuel pool underwater, which is the only thing that can keep it cool. Because these things come out of the reactor hot, and, and you, you can't get close to them because they'll kill you, the radiation coming off them. So the radiation is mitigated by sinking them into a spent fuel pool. From there, they have been, and this has been a big game played by Southern California Edison, who is the owner-operator there. They have been placed into canisters for storage. These canisters, first of all, are within 108 feet of the Pacific Ocean. They are only five-eighths of an inch thick stainless steel. If you've got a MacBook Pro and you look at how thin that is, that's five-eighths of an inch thick. That's the only thing between you and these hot fuel rods. They are only, the bottom of them are only a yard above where the water level is, which means in tide surge with global warming, the rise of the oceans, it can get in there. The canisters are known to be able to corrode in a saltwater environment. And the way that they are loaded into these concrete, this concrete structure that they're put in gouges and scratches them, which starts the corrosive process already. They, once they are sealed, they are not monitored. They cannot be reopened. They cannot be moved out of where they are. So basically, it's a pig and a poke. You're stuck with them there. We are stuck with them there. I live not far away from there. Now, what by stealth the Southern California Edison managed to do was to get the California Coastal Commission to say, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to say, you know, it's okay for you now to dismantle the spent fuel pools because once the fuel is completely out and the fuel is out now in these extremely flimsy tin cans, these thin canisters, um, you have no more need for these spent fuel pools, so you can take that apart. Well, Edison wants to take it apart because it costs them money to maintain it, but they need to maintain it because if anything goes wrong with any of those canisters ever, there's only one place for that stuff to go, and that's back into a spent fuel pool while the problem is worked out. Now, the canisters aren't made for that. They're not made to be able to get the stuff out. But, you know, in an emergency, maybe they figure out something, except by taking out the spent fuel pool, we will not only be painting, painting ourselves into a radioactive corner. It's like we're going to be ripping out the rest of the floorboards. We're going to be taking out the substructure of the building, and we're going to be stuck. And when I say we, this is within 50 miles. It's on the Pacific Ocean, so you've got possible contamination there. It's within an area that has 8 
million people in it. The port of San Diego, the port of Los Angeles, the port of Long Beach. It has agricultural land. It's got Disneyland and Knott's Berry Farm. You know, between tourism and agriculture and industry and shipping and everything else, we're talking about a major disaster. And it's not a question of if, but when. Because they're putting us in a position where there's no out from this. And we just have to keep our fingers crossed and hope that we're lucky. And luck is a terrible safety plan when it comes to nuclear reactors. Amazing. Um, now, we, we all know that there's been a lot of, let's say, cavalier use of nuclear explosives in the Southwest. You want to talk a little bit about the impact on the Shoshone communities in the Shoshone territory in the U.S.? Shoshone are the tribal people who have the land that was turned into the Nevada test site. And there was just an article that was written by a brilliant activist. Uh, he is principal man for the Western Shoshone tribe, a uh, man named Ian Zabarte. And it is written from his perspective as coming from the single most bombed nation on the face of the planet. Because these people were hit with 100 above ground tests and more than 850 underground tests. Oh, you know, close to a thousand nuclear detonations on their land. And there are reports of highly elevated rates of cancer, autoimmune disease, um, uh, fertility problems, children born with uh, various birth defects already in place or things that develop through the years. It's long, slow genocide. It's, it's equal, it is um, genocide against the indigenous people. And it's not just the Shoshone. They're the ones up in uh, the Nevada area. Then we have Navajo Nation, which is the site of over 500 unremediated uranium mines that have been abandoned. They have not been cleaned up. It's also the location of the largest radiation spill that ever took place on American land, which was... Um, Back 31 years ago, it was the, um, excuse me, 41 years ago. It was the same year as um, uh, Three Mile Island, but it got no publicity. The tailings pond for a uranium dump, for a uranium mining location, spilled its full contents into the Perco River, which runs through Navajo land and is a major source of water. For them, and it's a very arid area, so any source of water is important. This is the water that it has never been cleaned up. It's the drinking water, it's the bathing water, it's what's used to irrigate their crops, it's what their livestock drinks. And uh, there's currently a um, study going on in Navajo Nation called the Navajo Birth Cohort Study, and that is um, to track what the impact has been on the, uh, the youngest and most vulnerable. Uh, they track women from pregnancy through the baby's first two years to try and come up with uh, the statistics. Early findings are not positive. I mean, they are not good because they are showing elevated levels of, of illness and disease and death. Um, when you talk about downwinders from the nuclear explosions that did take place, that is a huge issue because anyone who is downwind from the Trinity test site, that Trinity test 
that was the uh, test that took place before Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, the, there was no warning of that. There are people who were impacted by that, families, family lines, genetic generations that have been impacted by that. And in that entire area, anyone who is downwind of the nuclear blast we got hit with radiation. I mean, we have nuked ourselves here in the United States more than any other physical country has. And as Ian Zabarte stated, it took place on the land that belonged to his nation, the Shoshone Nation. But nobody keeps radiation just in one place. It wafted, it flew around. We've still got that junk up in the jet stream overhead where it comes down to earth through rain or if the rain is converted into snow, which is why you can get radiation spikes in weird places at strange times, but it always correlates to rain or to snow. Uh, I was also going to ask you about the Dwayne Arnold uh, shutdown. Uh, Once more, this is the Iowa reactor. Mm -hmm. Um, It was supposed to be shut down, but they shut it down early due to wind damage. I think it's tremendously ironic that that a nuclear plant, which supposedly is the superior technology, uh, can be damaged by a windstorm. And here we find the fact that, uh, you know, can we really debate the power of the winds? I mean, is it, it, it um, is amazing to me that there's still so much resistance. And I suppose we have to say it's about fiscal uh, investments made and those who are profiting by nuclear power. But it just seems to me the the absolute height of irony that a nuclear plant was impacted by strong winds that supposedly, uh, as they say, are, are fitful and you can't always count on them. There's a, there's a chance there. Um, I was also going to ask you, are, are you staying, uh, I'm sure, close to the story about the slow return and, and literally the reluctance to return to the area around Fukushima? Oh, yes. Um, I just had a number of stories about that last week. In Fukushima, they are, it, it was amazing that uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has determined that um, he, is, he has announced that he is retiring at the end of this uh, his term for health reasons. Interestingly, what he has is ulcerative colitis, which is an autoimmune disease, and autoimmune diseases are made worse by exposure to radioactivity, which can cause them in the first place. So the fact that he was eating a lot of Fukushima food to go, ah, it's fine, I wonder if that factors in. But what you're saying about, about Fukushima, they have now decided to lift the evacuation orders in some of the most radioactive areas. I mean, these are areas that scientists could not even get into to study because they were too dangerous. The evacuation order has now officially is in the process of being lifted as long as the people who live there don't return. So in other words, it's an evacuation zone that's no longer an evacuation zone as long as you agree to stay evacuated. This is insane. What they're doing is they're trying to clean up the image of Japan before the Olympics, which are now set for 2021, and I don't think will ever take place. But they are still trying to whitewash the image of Japan. 
They also, along those lines, are now claiming that they will be releasing all of the tanks with radioactive water in it, thousands upon thousands of gallons, uh, Olympic swimming size pool amounts of radioactive water that were collected from Fukushima. There are certain radionuclides that can be taken out of water, but tritium cannot be. That's radioactive nitrogen. And this water all contains tritium, which the government agreed to. Greenpeace got their hands on some samples from, from the tanks, and they discovered that there, were, there was more than just tritium in there. There was strontium. Uh, there, was, there was a form of cesium in there, several other radionuclides as well. In other words, this is radioactive toxic water. Japan has been wanting to, instead of spend the money to store this on land, dump it into the Pacific Ocean. Hey, it's a big ocean. It will dilute. We'll get to the word dilute in a moment. Um, and they have now announced, they've had meetings about it, but they've all been rigged. And now it is believed that they're going to be dumping the water over objections of their fishermen, their country. Korea has lodged a complaint against this, that they say they're going to be doing this in late September or October of this year. Again, cleaning up the image in advance of what they hope will be the 2021 Olympics. This is criminal. This is the ocean, which belongs to the planet, which belongs to the world. And they say, well, we don't have any space to store the water anymore. Yes, they do. They just have to negotiate with local farmers who have been forced off of their land, the land exists there, and put up more tanks. But it's going to cost them. And we all know that money is more important than human lives and, and you know, the safety of the planet and the safety of all of our future generations and DNA and life on Earth. And I hope nobody mistook that for anything other than total sarcasm. Well, it seems to me that uh, they're prepared to gamble with the, with the planet's health. And, yes. And that... <laughs> That's an awfully big gamble. The entire nuclear industry is gambling with all of our health. We may have lost it already because of the amount of waste and the inability to store it safely for as long as it would need to be, which for some of these radionuclides is basically as long as there has been life on Earth, is how long we will again have to store this stuff safely and be able to warn any future generations that survive away from it, except how does one do that? Um, it's not possible. But what's worse is they're not trying. They're just pretending that it's okay because as long as they can kick the nuclear can down the road, it's like, ah, I'll be gone and off this planet by the time that happens and I don't have to worry about any future generations or my offspring or anything else on Earth. It is selfish. It is short-sighted. It is mean. It is evil. It is greedy. And it needs to be stopped. And what we need is people realizing that no matter where you are, as I say in the name of my program, my podcast, Nuclear Hot Seat, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. For example, when, that, when the radioactive waste gets, you know, if they push through, and we're all fighting very hard. Um, um, I had information on my show this week about how people can respond to this and get messages into the NRC saying, don't do it. Don't put that nuclear waste dump, which is going to ultimately be permanent in New Mexico. Um, but the waste is going to have to be, as I said, transported through 40 of our 50 states 
in order to get there. And how often do we hear about, oh, there's been a derailment on a train or there's been an accident on the road. A tanker spilled over and spilled its contents into a local waterway. How, I mean, those are normal stories in our degraded infrastructure. So to risk nuclear waste, which is already tremendously heavy, inside of a heavy canister, inside of a heavy transport canister, they recently took some materials from San Onofre to Idaho, where it's going to be where it's going to be stashed at the Idaho National Lab. It's one of the places we do things. They had to move it on a vehicle that had something like 80 axles on it at like four miles an hour through the roads and blocking things off in order to get it there. It had to creep up, and that was just part of a containment vessel that was being brought up there. We're talking about regular shipments of tens of thousands of pounds of plutonium-containing waste. They're playing Russian roulette with all of us, except maybe we should rename this nuclear roulette. Um, I noticed that the uh, UK Nuclear Association has unveiled a new report that sets out key factors to reduce risk and bring down the cost of nuclear power plant projects by 30% by 2030. The report was produced by a cross-industry team. Now, we know that shoddy science and corner-cutting is the hallmark of the nuclear industry. I can't um, tell you how shocked I am that they are planning to reduce the cost by 30%. How much impact is that going to have on safety? I can't even begin to guess, but I'm sure that hopefully our, our friends in the Nuclear Watch community has got their finger on this because this can't be good news. There's a, an enormous and very well-organized anti-nuclear community in, um, uh, in the U.K. because they have a wide range of issues there, and they've been working very hard on them. When it comes to a nuke saying, hey, we can get you your nuke at 30% off, um, I don't think, you know, it's cheap nukes. Somehow, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of like to the lowest bidder. Look, when they talk about reduced risk, they're only talking about financial risk, okay? They're not yeah. talking about safety. I mean, when I said five-eighths of an inch thick canisters here, in, here at San Onofre, in Germany, between the canisters and the concrete coatings on them, it's 20 inches, and it's inside a further concrete building, and everything can be checked and monitored and taken apart and put back together again. I mean, they have opted for safety. Is it more expensive? Yes. But the only thing that is looked at, certainly here in the U.S., and it sounds like in the U.K. as well, in, in the Western world, when it comes to nuclear, is how cheap can we get away with doing this? How fast can we step out on our responsibilities? And how much money can we grab from the public trust in the process? Be it the bailout bill that, that you know, took money away from genuine renewables, wind, geothermal, solar uh, in Ohio that's now in this massive uh, racketeering crime investigation and charges have been brought now um, to the kind of bribery and paying off. I mean, this week's show is about Northern Saskatchewan 
and what is being done to manipulate the people in northern Saskatchewan to bring in small modular nuclear reactors. They love to call them modular and not call them, not call them nuclear because then it makes it sound like Legos. You can just put the little pieces together. They want them <laughs> up in northern Saskatchewan where they, the people there, it's mostly indigenous, it's mostly wilderness. They can't afford it. They don't need it. But the mining companies use 80% of the electricity up there, and they want to nuke up there so that they can power investigation into the tar sands. It's all about destruction of the planet, destruction of our lives, destruction of our safety. And this stuff has got a half-life of longer than any of us can even hope the human race will be alive. That's how long it takes for it to be half as deadly as it is now. So we're planting the seeds of our own destruction and not even bothering to look at what we might do to mitigate the problem while there still might be a chance to tune this around. And that's why I do the work I do, and that's why everybody else who fights against nuclear does their work, and we invite anybody who's listening to this to join in. My show is Nuclear Hot Seat. Go ahead. I was just going to say, Lee, we tell them how to get in touch with you how they can follow you, how they can listen to the incredible reports that you do every week. Nuclear Hot Seat. Nuclear Hot Seat. S-O-T-S-E-A-T dot com. And it's also available on all podcast platforms. The show is in its 10th year of weekly programs. I've got more than 480 that are up that you can investigate. But really every week um, I use as much humor as possible, but it gives you an update on what's happening in the world. I always have interview or interviews with people who are involved in this issue and will give you a frontline look at what's happening in your community. So you can search it by location. You can search it by whether you're interested in weapons. We haven't talked about weapons today or, um, or uranium mining or weapons manufacturing, or nuclear reactors, or decommissioning, or waste. All of those issues are covered. And uh, I invite you to sign up for it. You can get it by email. I don't bug you. I just send one email a week with the show's link in it, so you get it first thing. And I also have a book you might want to take a look at. It's called Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile (laughs) Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat. It is my nuclear memoir because I was one mile from Three Mile Island when the nuclear accident happened, visiting a friend. Talk about bad timing. Um, But it also has a lot of information in there as to how I avoided all things nuclear. I was not trained in this. And how, once Fukushima happened, I became as active as I have become and self-educated. And anybody can make a difference in this. You can sign a petition. You can send a donation. You can listen to the show. You can find out what's going on in your area. You can join a group in your area because I can tell you no matter where you are, you have a nuclear issue, at least one, and there are people who are opposing it who would welcome your energy. And let's face it, in COVID times, what better thing would there be to do with our time than to work digitally and virtually to help get this very real danger put away, taken care of, and start us on the road to figuring out what in the world we're going to do about the mess that's already been made. Thank you so very much, Levy. Have a wonderful day, and uh, stay safe, please. Thanks again, Rick. Always a pleasure to come on your show. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. And we 
are back with Janine Ma for the Justice Report. Hey, Janine, how are you doing? I'm fine, Brooke. Um, this week we're going to be talking about a subject that really isn't very well known, but it's extremely dangerous. So I was reading, this deals with a, a, a legislative, it's not legislative, it's a legal creation that was first devised by Dwight Eisenhower. It's been used by every president of both parties ever since, and they're called PEADs, or um, Presidential Emergency Action Documents. And these are very dangerous items, and I'm going to go into that right now. So Marjorie Cohn wrote an article in Truth Out, and we've had her on the show before, and, you know, basically she's saying we have to fight him, you know, as he tries to hijack the election. I'm going to go into this. I'm just going to, basically, here's the deal. Everybody's talking about some sort of October surprise that Trump's going to use. And, you know, you have other people saying, oh, it won't really happen. I do believe there's an October surprise. And if for no other reason than Trump himself has floated certain schemes in the past few months, such as delaying the election, declaring the election rigged, maybe refusing to leave office. Now, while many progressives had wondered, excuse me, why DNC leaders have been relatively silent or even reticent fight Trump on these items, just shrugging it away. Perhaps the reason for the DNC's cowed behavior has been staring us in the face all along, and it deals with these PEADs. You see, this presidential power, very few people outside of the D.C. beltway, the insiders in D.C., know much about it, if anything. That means outside of presidential staff members and DOJ, and especially the office this part of DOJ that I loathe more than any other, namely the OLC, or Office of Legal Counsel. So the presidential power I'm speaking tonight is known in very small circles as that presidential emergency action document. Now, this secretive presidential power has no actual basis in constitutional law or in any legislation passed by Congress. It's a power that was initially created, as I said before, by Dwight Eisenhower, and it was under the auspices of being prepared for a national emergency, such as a nuclear attack. It's been used by, as I said before, every president since Eisenhower, no exceptions. There has not been a single president since Eisenhower that has refused to use this. In fact, I would argue that these PEADs are what I call a blueprint for dictatorship. And I also believe, with Attorney General William Barr's help, this is the October surprise. PEADs, or these emergency action documents, have been used to justify dictatorial edicts based on presidential whim, allegedly to meet some unnamed emergency. I would argue further that the temporary GOP insurgency against Trump, a.k.a. the Lincoln Republicans, isn't really cause for celebration. They should be looked at with some scrutiny because they had to, a lot of these people like uh, Kelly uh, Ann Conway's husband, they're insiders. They have to have known about PEADs, what is really a truly nuclear option for some time now. They're not concerned about constitutional government necessarily. They're panicked, and this is my theory, they're panicked and irate that Trump blurted out the entire sordid truth, probably the only truth that has come from Donald's, from the Donald's bloated lips, but it was something that they weren't, nobody, either party was supposed to talk about. So here is the other insanely obscene fact about PEADs. When a president uses one, Congress is rarely, if ever, informed. 
And no, I'm not kidding. In fact, if members of Congress, which is supposed to be allegedly an equal branch of government, demand to be informed regarding PEADs, they're denied access. And this sounds illegitimate to you, it should, because it is. So let's talk about these PEADs. So as I said, Marjorie Cohn wrote this article in Truth Out, and the headline was, if Trump tries to hijack the election, we must be ready to risk to resist. Um, whoops, my computer's acting up here. Okay, so Cohen explained that Trump's secret weapon, namely U.S. Attorney General William Barr, is reviewing these PEADs, which this legal contrivance dating back attributed to Eisenhower, and PEADs, according to Cohen, quote, have purported to authorize unconstitutional actions such as the suspension of habeas corpus, arbitrary detention, and the declaration of martial law. Cohn, who, you know, is also a constitutional scholar, also added that PEADs, quote, are so secret that not even Congress has seen them. The Freedom of Information Act requests have occasionally led to a revelation of their contents in public sources. PEADs could provide Trump with an unfettered opportunity to employ authoritarian, even military tactics to maintain power, end quote. So why have these alleged secret powers been allowed to exist? Well, the Brennan Center for Justice, which is an, basically operates out of the New York, uh, New York University Law School, um, basically describes PEADs. And they say these presidential emergency action documents, they're basically executive orders, and I would say executive orders on steroids. They can take the form of proclamations, executive orders, and or messages to Congress. They're written in advance, so that the idea being that a president can take advantage, that a president can uh, act in various emergency scenarios, and all it takes to implement these pre-written uh, ordinance, pre-written executive orders is a president's signature. Most importantly, they're classified as secret. Not kidding. Even members of Congress, again, are not allowed access. In fact, these keys are not subject to any congressional oversight, and this is a major problem. Basically what happens is this. Most federal, federal law requires that the executive branch report even the most sensitive secretive or covert military and intelligence operations to a, at least a select member, select group of members of Congress, and usually it's eight senators, and it's referred to as a gang of eight. However, PEDs are not required to provide any disclosure. Examples of PEDs that have been used in past years include, and this is really vile, authorized detention of alien enemies and other dangerous persons within the United States. That's one. Two. Suspended the writ of habeas corpus by presidential order. Three, provided for various forms of martial law. Four, issued a general warrant permitting search and seizure of persons and property. Five, established military areas such as those created during World War II, in other words, the Japanese American internment camps. Six, suspended production of the Federal Register. Seven, declared a state of war, even though, once again, Congress. Is the branch is supposed to declare war, not a president. And seven, authorized, censors, authorized censorship of news reports, which is totally unconstitutional. Now, in every instance, the actions I just read off would not only be considered crimes against humanity in any legitimate international court, but 
unconstitutional. Now, the Brennan Center for Justice, uh, Professor Elizabeth Goitian, G-O-I-T-E-R-E-N, I don't know if I'm saying it correctly or not. Professor Goitian spearheads the center's um, national security program. She's the co-director, and she characterized these, these powers, the secret powers, as, quote, these are essentially presidential orders that are drafted in anticipation of a range of hypothetical worst-case scenarios. All right. So, you know, let's say maybe, God forbid, there was a, a, a nuclear attack, all right, or maybe a response to Hurricane Katrina. My question is this. Why does any president need to suspend the Constitution of the Bill of Rights to bring any sort of material aid and medical aid to people that have been attacked. One has nothing to do with the other, but that's what their excuse is. <clears throat> so Professor Gautin was also on a, she was listening to an interview with Ted Koppel on CBS this morning, and this was, I think, from August 16th. And so Koppel um, asked Gautin, quote, several times during his administration, President Trump has made allusions to secret powers that he has that we don't know about. Is he making that up? And Gautin explained, quote, well, not exactly. And what's alarming about that is that no one really knows what the limits of both claimed authorities might be because they are often developed and kept in secret, end quote. And Gautin added that since we know so little about PEDs, what we do know is often derived from references to those PEDs in other documents. And some of those reference documents are now just declassified so we're able to get a little more knowledge about it. To further quote Gautin, he originated in the Eisenhower administration as part of an effort to try to plan for a potential Soviet nuclear attack, end quote. And again, my question is, why does planning for a potential nuclear attack need to include suspension of the Constitution and Bill of Rights? One has nothing to do with the other. Gautin went on to say, quote, but since then they've expanded to address other types of emergencies as well. No presidential emergency action document has ever, has even been released or even leaked. Not even Congress has access to them, which is really pretty extraordinary when you consider that even the most highly classified covert military and intelligence operations have to be reported to at least eight members of Congress, the Gang of Eight, end quote. So what do those who have the knowledge of peace think about this illegitimate power and why have they remained silent? Whenever we can't cover tonight, we're going to continue on. So in basically Ted Koppel's piece, you know, the, the first line is, quote, the power of the president is enormous, and this president is not bashful in describing powers that go well beyond simple declarations. Well, so that's obvious. It's not vacuous. So, you know, here's the thing. Ted Koppel interviewed former presidential candidate and U.S. Senator Gary Hart. And Hart is very loud about this. And this was on this Koppel Sunday morning program. Um, Koppel said, quote, he said, a month earlier, Trump said, I have the right to do a lot of things that people don't even know about, end quote. Obviously alluding to Peds, then Koppel reached out and, quote, and quoted former U.S. Senator Gary Hart. And here's what Gary Hart said. Quote, even though I've had security clearances for the better part of 50 years and been in and out of national security matters during the, that half century, I have never heard of these secret powers, end quote. Koppel then asked Senator Hart, do you know what they are now that you've heard of them? Hart responded, quote, only vaguely due to research done at the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University Law School. What these secret powers are, apparently based on the research, is suspension of the Constitution, basically. 
And that's what's worrying, particularly on the eve of the national election, end quote. My point is this. There's no room for a secret body of law at all. There never will be. Um, so, I'm sorry. Hold on. I made this. So, why have these alleged – give me a minute here. My computer's acting up. I have all this written down. Okay. So, uh, basically, why have they been allowed to exist? Give me a second here. Ah. Technology is wonderful, isn't it, Brooke? I'll tell you. Oops. All right. So Hart went on. Um, there was in this new CBS news piece, sorry for the delay here, um, there was an, they, Ted Koppel found a piece from a 1967 memo, and it quoted William Cornelius Sullivan of the FBI. And the memo alludes to the suspension of habeas corpus. And the sentence in question is highlighted in yellow and reads, quote, A1-8, quote, suspends the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus and authorizes apprehension and detention of certain persons, the search of persons and premises, and the seizure of property. Sullivan then wrote in that memo, and this guy, you know, he's uh, supervising the FBI, quote, this is a drastic program set up under the assumption that drastic steps will be necessary to protect the national security of this country, so that efforts can be made to remove from circulation individuals determined to be potentially dangerous to the national defense and public safety of the United States by engaging in espionage, sabotage, and, and or subversion in the event an attack is launched against this country, end quote. Gary Hart then explained, oops, here we go again. Bear with me. My computer is really acting up tonight, and I have everything in my outline. Okay. So, this is something where this is supposed to be about taking care of anybody who might be wanting to do us harm. Now, Gary Hart explained, quote, the reason these documents are secret is for 11 administrations, people in power did not want to frighten the American people and or demonstrate what might happen to their constitutional rights and liberties. Hart continued. Every administration, including Democratic administrations, has revised and updated these powers. I started contacting friends of mine in both parties who had been in senior positions, and I got two responses, or one response, which is, quote, I've never heard of these powers, and these are people in senior cabinet positions, or I got no response at all. And it was the no response at all from people I knew that it began to worry me, because there not only is secrecy around these powers, there is mystery around the secrecy. National legal director of the ACLU, David Cole, was quoted as saying, I think I know as much as any other American citizen, which is almost nothing at all. Now keep in mind that Cole's already worried about the Presidential Emergency Powers Act that we do know about, uh, such as the National Emergency Act of 1976, and that allows any president to declare a national emergency just by signing a proclamation. Cole added, quote, we've got a president who in his first week of office essentially declared an emergency to ban Muslims from coming into the country. More recently, he's declared he may need to delay the election, which would be an emergency authority that doesn't even exist. I think you have to be very concerned. Now, this is what people that may consider constitutional liberties important think. Then, Koppel interviewed and spoke to Torture Memo co-author, law professor John Yu. And Yu's a professor, a law professor at the University of California, Berkeley, during the administration of George W. Bush, he served in the Office of Legal Counsel. He co-authored the memo used to legally justify the use of torture, 
or the memo dubbed enhanced interrogation. So Koppel asked John Yu about the peeps. Koppel asked, just to reassure our viewers a little bit, John, have you seen these peeps? You laughed as he responded as if this was some kind of inside joke and not the constitutional crime it is. He said, quote, I am not allowed to say whether I have or not. Apparently, John Yu thinks this is funny. Koppel added, let me put it this way. You were at the Justice Department. Presumably, the Justice Department would have had to deal with these peeps if the president wanted to implement one. You responded, yes, that's fair to say. The Justice Department the office I worked in were reviewed the legality of the peas because they were drawn presidential powers and congressional powers delegated to them. Koppel noted that you was just at the White House discussing executive power with Trump. We had a program about this a couple of weeks ago. And you explained, quote, because you know what the emergency, because you never know what the emergency is going to be. So these peas and similar contingency planning documents, when we look back historically, I know sometimes they seem comic. Koppel responded, quote, the notion there are executive powers based on something that has never been vetted by Congress, giving the president almost limitless powers to do what he needs to do in the event of a crisis. That's not funny to me. That's scary. You backtrack, quote, oh, forgive me. I don't mean the whole question is comic. And you're right, Ted. There's dangers to that. And he goes on. Um, and, and the fact is this. Uh, well, here. You went on to say there's dangers that we've seen our history where presidents have gone too far. I guess there's a balance, and I guess the founders, they balanced in favor of giving the president that kind of ability to face emergencies, even understanding that a badly intentioned president might abuse those powers, end quote. My question is, why are we attributing, first of all, such idol worship to the founders? Aren't the principal institutions supposed to be the leading guide and not any one person or group? And show me where in the Constitution it alludes to president having the powers of a dictator. I don't see it. Professor Gotin was more pensive in her estimation on these illegitimate powers. She said, quote, these peas undergo periodic revision, and we know that the Department of Justice is in the middle of one of these periodic reviews and revisions, so we have to imagine what the Trump administration might be doing with these documents and what authorities this administration might be, um, this administration might be trying to give us of what authority. Uh, so, you know, once again, um, you saw it differently. He said, quote, that's why the framers created the presidency was because it could act quickly. Uh, and, you know, once again, my question is this of John Yu and the others that are for this. What does a rapid response to an emergency such as a hurricane have to do with stripping us of our human rights? How can abolishing the people's rights aid in protecting us from alleged terrorists? I would expect better reasoning from a UC Berkeley law professor. And Koppel wasn't buying it either. Um, and so Koppel asked him, you know, what if the president was planning to do with suspension of habeas corpus? How would you feel about it then? And you said, I'd be the first to admit that in an emergency, the executive branch can make mistakes, and sometimes that's the price of swift action. Um, you know, again, without going into all of this, that that's just not a good enough reason. So this is a blueprint for a dictatorship. No doubt about it. And one of the things that we have to remind ourselves about these presidential emergency, um, these P's, these executive orders that basically give a president total power. Okay, when Trump's been, you know, saying these things, he may have said it awkwardly, he may have said it in a vulgar manner, but it's one of the few times he was actually telling the truth. And the fact remains that one of the reasons why Donald Trump is such a mortal threat, not only to this country, but to the entire world, is because we have allowed a series of presidents from both parties 
to steal power for the presidency that it was never intended to have. So now, one of the few people that wants to challenge this is Senator Markey. Senator Markey just beat Joe Kennedy. And, you know, Senator Markey's been, you know, been in office a long time, but Pelosi and some of the others were behind, were behind uh, Kennedy. Here's the thing. Markey introduced this bill to rein in unlawful pres- presidential emergency powers, and it's called the RAIN Act. And in short, it would require a U.S. president to turn over to Congress secret orders that that president invoked in an emergency to claim these extraordinary powers, this total power. And you know, what I've basically observed is that neither party wants the presidency to lose this power. They're fine as long as it's their person that's sitting in the Oval Office. You know, during the Obama administration, you did not hear, you know, people that were neoliberal, say, on fiscal policy, but they were social progressives. You didn't hear them complain about this. See, and when you brought it up to them, they said, well, but Obama's a good guy. He wouldn't do that. That's not the point. The point is it is way too dangerous for any one office to have that level of power. That's the whole premise for separation of powers in the first place. And so Markey is one, basically the only one who's really pushed this. I think Senator Leahy was in on it too. And I can't help thinking that the DNC, including Nancy Pelosi, they don't want to see a Democratic president lose this type of power. They're just waiting to see that they can get their person in office. That's my opinion. And this is far too dangerous to allow this to stand. Um, and, and there's been some dissent over, you know, over the years. Uh, one of the most widely known Pete's in local history, let's see, I've got it here, was a Pete that basically gave Oliver North um, yeah, here it was. In the 1980s, Reagan uh, made a piece that basically, um, and Ollie North was in charge of his National Security Council, that developed plans to suspend the Constitution and allow the executive branch to suspend habeas corpus, which, by the way, legally only Congress has the legal right to do that, uh, impose military governors on the state, and round up 10,000 people who were or are on a list of alleged subversives. And I think some people refer to this as a Rex 84 plan. You know, and people say, oh, conspiracy theory. It's not a conspiracy theory. It was real. It was there. And so you have this situation now. And so when people laugh at Trump and say, oh, he's just making stuff up. No, he isn't. That's just it. This is one of the few times he's probably telling the truth. And so... You know, once again, some of the things that a president could do using a PED, if it's a national emergency, yes, they could deploy troops on U.S. soil. They could divert Pentagon funds. They could threaten and do process. They could construct concentration camps, implement martial law, and so and censor, and so on and so forth. This is not a joke, people. This is real. And you know, uh, the question is, why was this allowed to continue? Why the secrecy? Um, you just have this situation where they use the excuse of continuity of government. 
to continue things, mm-hmm. you know, if there's a horrible emergency. But once again, why do you need to suspend the Bill of Rights, suspend the Constitution to help people if there's been some disaster? That has nothing to do with getting emergency food to people in such a disaster, getting medical help, none of that. One has nothing to do with the other. And once again, we have had all these people that have remained silent. Uh, and it was during both Democrat and Republican administrations. There is not and a single exception. 100%. I mean, this is what the, it, it wasn't uh, on the subject of PEDS, but uh, with the executive, uh, with the unitary executive and with executive privilege, you saw Obama hold on to those powers. And right. It, and, you know, we were electing him hoping to fix all of the stuff that um, George W. Bush Jr. Uh, broke. And that was one of the main things that for, for me, you know, that and the habeas mm-hmm. corpus, uh, all of the, you right. know, all of those uh, uh, incursions into power that were taken on in the Bush Cheney years. And yeah, well, the Democrats it, it, want them for it, it, themselves. Right. The devil's in the details. Even President Obama, remember I wrote that piece about the NDAA of 2011, mm-hmm. you know, and Obama tried to reassure people, say, oh, you won't be named an enemy combatant and tortured or anything if you're a citizen. It doesn't include citizens, but the, the actual legal phrases do not expressly forbid it. So it doesn't forbid mm-hmm. it. Yes, it can happen. And the fact is, this is damning. Keep in mind, majority of people in Congress are attorneys. They know better. This mm-hmm. has to go. The fact that this is something that has no legitimacy anywhere, and it, it has to be abolished. The presidency has become far too dangerous, which is why Donald Trump is so dangerous. And it's not about a good guy or a bad guy scenario. No one person, no one office should have that level of exclusive power. There's just no way. 100%. And we need to strip the presidency of a lot of its power. But Pete's this October surprise, could Donald Trump write a P or use a P and then implement it? Yes, he could. Which mm-hmm. And right now, Bill Barr is actually reviewing the P's to see if they can get away with it. Mm-hmm. Seriously. Yeah. So yeah. This is, not, well, this is this so, not, important. so important. So we're, there's more information. We don't have enough time to go over all of this today. Um, mm-hmm. Next week, I'm going to be speaking to a Black Lives Matter um, activist and organizer, Elijah Foggy, who also has worked with Reverend Gray, and then we're going to go right. back to this. So we're going to be discussing this more and more and more because this is something that needs to be abolished. Super duper. Well, Janine, thank you so much for such an amazing report once again, and I look forward, as always, to next week because it just seems like every week you're bringing such game and I so appreciate it. Thank you so much, Janine. Thank you. Thank, thank you, ma'am. Have a good okay. one. You too. All right, you Bye-bye. guys, thanks for putting up for me with me for another week. And uh oh my gosh, what a great show. Uh, I love Rick's segment. Uh just so proud to bring him and Janine to you guys every week. And uh, you know, Uh, Peace out. We're going to see you again next week with uh, more stuff and uh, uh, can't wait. Can't wait to see what next next week brings. See you then.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.